Warriors podcast. I'm Max. I'm Rich. And on this podcast, we focus on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode in particular, we're going to be taking a look at Weird War Tales number 49. But first, Rich has a little something for you. Retroactive history and time for a cell phone. Cell phone, not a cell phone. I was surfing the interwebs recently and random randomly typed in Bill Finger in the search bar. The dapper black and white photo we all know and love came up in several places. So yeah, imagine my surprise when a screenshot from Mark Evanier's News From Me blog posted that photo of Finger with the statement that it is actually Bob Conagher. As I read the following, I became aghast because I had erroneously corrected someone on Find a Grave into taking a correct photo of Conagher down from that blog. The late Bill Finger, as many but not enough of us know, was the unbilled for far too long co-creator of Batman and much of the Batman mythos. Throughout his life, he received way too little credit for this, i.e. none, and nowhere near enough financial reward. That injustice has been undone somewhat as the credits on Batman now say created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger, whereas they used to just say created by Bob Kane. It's sad that Mr. Finger never lived to see this happen, but at least it's happened. Unfortunately, his face continues to be miscredited. Very few fingers, very few photos of Finger exist, and one often sees photos of other longtime contributors to DC Comics identified as Finger. Most often, it's a photo of Robert Conagher, who wrote Wonder Woman for about 8 million years and who edited and often wrote DC's war comics for a very long time. When Conagher received a posthumous Bill Finger Award, I procured a photo of him from a relative of Conagher's and did an awful lot of photoshopping to make it even look that good. It was part of the press release announcing the reward. Gardner Fox, who wrote Justice League of America, The Flash, Hawkman, and who created The Last Two and many others, is sometimes also mistaken for Finger. Fox actually was the second writer to write Batman shortly after the debut story, which was by Finger. Fox also won the Finger Award, and therein lies some of the confusion. The way search engines like Google and Bing index photos is that they find photos, and then they find words and names near those photos. If I were to go onto the net and post a photo of you on many websites with the word aardvark near your pick, the engines would eventually decide that you were an aardvark and would probably display the pic of you when someone searched for an image of an aardvark. Because the photo of Conagher often appeared near the term Bill Finger on the web, the search engines display it when you search for a photo of Bill Finger. So I keep seeing Conagher identified as Finger. I made up this graphic and I'm posting it here to alert anyone who comes here, but I'm also posting it because I want them to get into the databases of Google, Bing, and other search engines. If you have a website that has anything to do with comic books or Batman, or which just gets a lot of hits from the spiders that crawl the web collecting images for search engines, please copy the image below and post it onto your site. Don't change the name of it. Put it up, and if enough folks do this, it will be seen along. It will be seen among the first images when someone searches for the, a photo of Bill Finger, the most neglected man in comics. Thank you. So, yeah, I have to humbly apologize to Finger. Again, it was bad enough I put up a, a photo of Bob Kane the first time I tried to do a remembrance post of Finger to commemorate his death on January 18th, 
1974 at the age of 59 due to the algorithms mentioned above. But then I corrected it with a picture of Bob Conniger. <sighs> I'm going to have to do a whole new remembrance post when that date comes around again, which those of you that frequent the FB page should already know since it would have been about the time the Sergeant Rock special mission episode was released. Check the album for everything I was just talking about. Intel Report, Mother Russia, a three-part miniseries created by Jeff McComsey. I think this story is in its third reprint from as many different publishing companies since 2015, but I only found it in September of this year. Stalingrad, 1943. One baby, one rifle, two million zombies. In the middle of a zombie apocalypse, a Soviet sniper risks her life to protect something she hasn't seen in a long time. A perfectly healthy baby boy. And her partner? A Wehrmacht soldier and his dog. Shades of 30 Days of Night Red Snow, which was a similar Eastern Front Soviet-German team-up only with vampires. I helped the Grand Comics database on, on that one, too. Yeah, I'd actually heard of Mother Russia a long time ago. Um, it came out from a little publisher called Alterna Comics, which is still going. I guess their claim to fame is they put out cheap comics on newsprint. You get them for like a buck ninety nine these days, and that's where they started. But all the stuff that Alterna published is creator owned, so they're allowed to walk and go take it elsewhere if they feel like it. So yeah, Mother Russia and a few of other their other titles have popped up at different publishers in different formats. So I've actually read that one and it was several years ago. <laughs> yeah, I, well, what happened was they did a, it was like a Christmas standalone one-shot, winter standalone one-shot or something like that. And I picked that up like, you know, like six years ago or whatever the hell it was. And then, you know, this this one, you know, dropped to my lap, you know, about a month or so ago. So when I was going through, you know, entering all the comics into my files and stuff like like what's this? You know, it was, it was this winter standalone special. Like, I'll be damned. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how this one wraps up. Or As of this recording, we are two, two issues of a three-part issue, uh, three-part miniseries in. So I'm looking forward to the conclusion of it. Yeah, it's good stuff. So while you guys all look for whatever version of that you want to read and collect, and while you're helping, uh, Make sure the internet can identify Bill Finger properly and and making sure we can too. You can take a little break and listen to something about another piece of excellent podcast entertainment. And when we get back from that break, we will take a look at the issue at hand. Imagine a podcast that celebrates the things we love. Why spend time being so angry and cynical about our fandoms? Join me, the Irredeemable Shag, for a show where we're just trying to be happy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast. Our discussions focus on a variety of geeky subjects that we're passionate about. While the topics will be ever-changing, our focus will be on science fiction, comic books, what it means to be a geek in this world, and other nostalgia-fueled ideas. Life is short. Focus on the positive. Find your joy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast. Part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. And we're back. So as I promised before the break, we are going to be focusing on Weird War Tales number 49, 
And as is SOP here on the show, Rich is going to hit you with that cover detail. Pencils by Jack Sparling, inks by Vince Coletta. 30 cents. The Lion of DC Superstars banner is gone. The Weird War Tales title is blue on a red background. A skull wearing a Roman helmet tosses with a bony hand. Five soldiers from multiple nationalities and eras into his grinning maw. A text block next to the skull reads, There are no guarantees in war. Except, and then the text continues under the skull, The right to die. Cover date, November, December, 1976. Date of release, August 19th, 1976. No good, Joy. Max, take it away. All right, so comments and commendations on this cover. It's pretty basic on some levels, but it's also well-designed, well-drawn, and effective. The background coloring and the negative space allowed in the upper portion gives the logo a chance to really pop, while the shading and darkening of that background as you go lower on the cover helps the giant skull beneath it transform into or transition into its into its own space and share in the eye-catching duties. I feel like again, it's it's not a super busy cover, but it's really well done and it looks like it was custom made to stand out on the spinner racks. So, and it, and it would have done an excellent job of that if I had noticed it at 5 years old or so when this came out. I I I really dig it. It's a good cover. Yeah, I like this one too. Uh, some of the skull's teeth are missing, which adds to the eerie touch. The multiple errors of the soldiers is a great accent as well. I see two World War I troops, one from each side, and a GI. One might be from the Spanish-American War, based on his headgear, but the barefoot one in the ragged clothes, I have no idea. Maybe Rev War? I don't know. Uh, the cover is oddly captivating. I can gaze at this one for quite a while. Good start. Right on. With the cover out of the way, we're going to let Rich take us into the first story in the issue because we got a friend visiting us at the start here. Face of the Enemy. Five pages. Script by Jack Olek. Art by Leo Duranona. Peace was a blessed relief to a gentle, sensitive man like Moore, but the war was not yet done with him. For fate had decreed that he should have one last bitter look at the face of the enemy. May 8th, 1945. A U.S. platoon fighting through a ravaged German town gets word over the radio that the war is over. The problem is the Germans haven't heard yet and are still blazing away. Abruptly, the firing ceases, and soon the enemy emerges from their positions hands raised and flying a white flag. It's true, the war is over. Moore is a radioman and he had spent the war praying that he would be able to come through the fighting without killing anyone. So far he had, but he's not out of the woods yet. The captain goes to talk to the town's burgermeister about cooperating. The best way to ensure things stay peaceful is to get the mayor on board. But the burgermeister is a believer, ignoring the captain's request. Help you? I am a German. I do not help those who would destroy us. For you, the war may be over, but not for us. Our children have been taught from infancy to hate you 
and we will go on fighting, even if you kill us all. The captain knows a lost cause when he sees one and leaves in disgust. More follows. Outside, the two men chat about the Burgermeister. The Germans were all quit in a day or two. They were sick of the war, too. Maybe, but there are men who enjoy killing, the officer muses. A potato masher flies from out of the shadows and explodes in the captain's jeep, flipping the vehicle onto its side. Five of the seven men crowded around it are casualties, including the captain. Ignoring his wound, the captain points out the fleeing Nazi and orders Moore and another GI to go after him. But sir, the war is over, Moore, Moore exclaims. I know it is, blast you, but he doesn't seem to think so. Dump that radio, go after him. The German disappears down an alley, and the two Americans split up to track him down. Moore prays that the alley he had chosen is the wrong one. He isn't a coward, but he isn't a killer either. No luck. He sees the German hide behind some trash cans. Moore calls out for him to surrender and has to duck when the German opens fire. He counts the rounds and then silence. The German's out of ammo. Now Moore could take him alive. But the German refuses to surrender and tries to escape by climbing over a nearby fence. Moore has no choice. Even as he fires, he sobs. In the end, one way or another, Moore makes killers of us all. Walking up to check on the German, his heart is filled with agony. It's a blonde-haired kid who couldn't have been over 12. One hour ago, peace would have brought relief to a man like Moore. Now it merely signals the beginning of a lifelong torment, for he will never be able to forget the face of the enemy. No killjoy, but how about a story of reenacted valor? <laughs> I'm sure many of our listeners have seen the Brad Pitt movie Fury, an armor flick that takes place in Germany in the spring of 1945. And there's a scene fairly early on where a few Hitler youth knock on a Sherman with a Panzerfaust and get riddled for their trouble. One of the many tragedies of the war at this stage was the pointless slaughter of the Hitler youth and Volkskrieg. The very young, the very old, and the walking wounded that would still have been hospitalized otherwise. As has been stated numerous times here, I've been fighting, quote, quote, World War II for longer than I've been wearing the current uniform. But I was in the army when this battle took place. One of the local reenactors' impressions is that, is, is that of Volkstrom. He built a battlefield on his Adirondack property and invites allied units to come up and play in the wintertime. Home field advantage is everything. This guy was undefeated. And for good reason, he dug trenches, constructed bunkers on flat ground between an icy creek and a very steep, treed, snow-covered embankment. And there was next to no cover for the attacking forces. It was a killing field. Even if you wanted to cross the creek, you'd be totally exposed in the effort. Head-on was a death sentence. The only way to win was to go up that 60-degree slope and try to get behind him. No one had figured it out yet, apparently. I told my guys my plan and to keep the bad guys busy and started climbing. I, I, I don't know how the hell I got to the top of that hill, but I did. I outflanked the enemy's positions and slid down the embankment behind them. There was a bunker covering their six, and I thought I was toast. Incredibly, it was empty. I get it. Guarding the rear sucks. We do this hobby to play with our toys, not sit behind the lines and be bored just in case. Although, to be fair, I did that at one event and ended up saving our asses when a German squad tried to roll us up. 
I crawled through the embrasure of the bunker and ran crouched over down the trench towards the sound of the firing. The trench ended before I got to the engaged enemy positions, which was separate defensively. Now, a funny thing about firing blanks is that there's a code. You must establish eye contact to take your hit, quote, quote, unless you're play acting to the crowd on a public tactical. So I popped up in the trench beside them, leveled my rifle, and whistled loudly. The look of absolute shock on their faces as I opened fire is one I will carry with me forever. <laughs> Where did he come from? Most of them dutifully took their hits and went down. One fired late, so I gave them that one and went down too. But by that point, all the Americans that had been pinned down in the killing field overran the enemy line thanks to my distraction. So much for being undefeated, Johnny. You're welcome. This is what happens when a real soldier plays the game. But you won't do that again. Give me my fake posthumous silver star. Comments and commendations. <laughs> Still not a fan of Duranona's art as a whole, but I also have to say this is easily the best effort he's put in so far. Really like his detailed work on the page one splash, the devastated town, the shadows, the SS poster on the wall. Page two, panel five. The Burgermeister screaming at the captain is sporting the same mustache as a certain individual whose portrait is on the wall behind them. And the best one, the reveal, last panel, page five, where Moore realizes what he's done. The silhouetted ruins in the background, the shoes the kid is wearing with the soles peeling off and wrapped in rags, the cuffs of the pants rolled up because they were too big for him. Like the narrator says, this will be in Moore's dreams for the rest of his life. Total win for Olek and Duranona. Not weird in the slightest, because you know this happened, but definitely one of the most sobering stories we've seen in this book. And I got to remind people, I try not to read the Killjoys or the History Minutes before we record, and I didn't read that one. And that story is hilarious. I freaking love that. That is, that is great. That's 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 what you pay your money for, folks, right there. <laughs> it's freaking awesome. So for this story, I I'll say I got to mention listener Bill Mooney has more than once defended Duranona from mine and Rich's assaults on the Facebook page, claiming that Leo's art was too constrained by the demands and limitations of the comic book format. And I got to say, this is the first time that I can see clear signs that Bill may just be right. Since we've bagged on Leo so hard in the past, I'll lead off my CNC with my praises of his work here. On page two, panel five, the ranting Burgermeister that Rich mentioned, it reminds me very much of Kyle Baker's art, which is to say one of the modern geniuses of comic book art and beyond. So that's no faint praise in my book. It just really has that Kyle Baker vibe if you check it out. Panel three on page three is a favorite of mine too, as you might have guessed. With the full panel explosion and the sound effect of blam lettered right into the fireworks of the blast. It's good work there. On page four, panel three, the V-shaped composition around, uh, I believe it's Moore's face, adds to the emotion of the scene, the intensity of it. The final panel of the story also, again, that Rich rightfully mentioned, is great for all the reasons he said, but again, for the creative use of layout and composition. In fact, the layout and design work is pretty great throughout this little tale, and the storytelling is super clear. And before I slip completely out of character here, I gotta mention that Leo's rendition of the skeletal host is nicely done, too. And as for the, the writing, the story, you know, what we were here to read, oh, yeah, 
Another, they don't know or won't accept that the war is over trope, sure, but with an even more tragic ending than most. This was a heck of a start. And like, I, I can't stress how much more impressed I was by Leo's work here. You can read it. The use of negative space seems purposeful instead of lazy. It's th This is him really, really strutting his stuff. And I, I see what Bill Mooney was talking about. There's He's got more under the hood than he's been showing us so far. So that's the first story out of the way, and quite a good one at that. Let's see what follows it up with A Right to Die. And that's right, R-I-T-E. It's three pages long. Script is by Reliable George Cashdan with art by Ricardo Viamonte. Synopsis goes a little something like this. Sergeant Willie Krause has captured a partisan and is taking him back to headquarters for questioning. When his captive suddenly lunges on him, the German runs him through with his bayonet. The partisan's dying scream is heard by others, and Krause is forced to flee. There seems to be no escape from his pursuers until he stumbles upon a church. Strange. Krause had been here often and had never seen it before. Whatever. Once inside, he'd be safe. All the natives in this area consider any church a sanctuary, he thinks. As soon as he enters, Krause is greeted by several tall men wearing cloaks and what appears to be skull masks. We welcome thee, stranger, and give thanks to our master for sending thee, one says in an eerie tone. You were expecting me? You must have the wrong man. I am simply a soldier of the Wehrmacht, not one of your religion. It matters not who thou be, nor do we care. Krauss is seized, his shirt torn open, and then he is dragged onto a stone slab. It is written in our scriptures that on this very night, during our black mass, a non-believer would be sent for sacrifice. Sword is raised to be plunged into the German's chest, and Kraus struggles in vain. Do not protest, stranger. Be proud. The death is for the glory of Baal and Lucifer, otherwise known as Satan, our master. The sword comes down and the church disappears. Outside, Kraus's pursuers are puzzled. The German's trail led right to this clearing and suddenly stopped. It was as if he had vanished into thin air. All right. There, there may be some killjoy, but it's but it's going to be packaged with some CNC. So I'll uh, I'll get my CNC out of the way first and say again, we are given a story with excellent page layout work that is both creative and clear as a great example of it right away on page one as well. As the, fleeting, uh, as the fleeing partisan's open coat in panel one opens into the splash panel below without detracting from the flow into panel two. The consistent portrayal of that coat as an area of negative space is used well throughout the page too. The logo could almost be seen as too simple or cartoony, but something about it makes me think of an animated title popping up one word at a time before the start of a short grindhouse feature film. So I end up landing on really liking it. On page two, having the first panel, uh, the first two panels floating over the third panel is a really nice effect. Again, making the page interesting to look at 
without detracting from the storytelling flow at all. In panel one on page three, Krauss's face looks like it was drawn by Frank Robbins, which frequent listeners of this show will know is not a bad thing in my opinion. And panel three on that page is just awesome. Although perhaps Krauss could have picked better phrasing here than, I order you to put me down. Sure thing, bud. <laughs> we'll put you down just like we put down old Yeller. <laughs> I really liked, I really liked this one. It had a campy atmosphere, some very evocative and creative art. And a Nazi was killed by servants of Satan. Past the popcorn. Having back-to-back stories with Duranona and Viamonte has a surprise side effect of just how similar their two styles were. Viamonte rebounded from his last effort pretty well, but he really needs to work on drawing helmets. Everyone he drew looks too big, the narrator, or looks like he lifted it out of a sci-fi movie. Like Spaceballs, the splash panel. Come on. The longer you look at it, the easier it is to see dark helmet. I'm sticking to my guns here. The pegs that are visible on the helmet side wouldn't be there if it was a World War II helmet, but on a World War I stall helm, they do belong. The last panel of the story is a little confusing. The German was being chased by partisans, but here the two pursuers appear to be German soldiers? I think I have to lay that one at Viamonte's feet as well. My favorite panel, all that notwithstanding, is the page one panel, panel one and four blend on page one that has already been discussed. The partisan's coat hanging open, and then from the chest down, the, the coat forms panel four's edge where three partisans backlit by the moon start chasing the German soldier. Very well done. That said, the story itself is a three-page dog, as many of the three pages are. Next. (laughs) Yeah, I got to admit, right here, um, I completely missed that the identity of the pursuers had mysteriously changed completely in the last panel. I was just enjoying myself so much that I missed that entirely until you just pointed it out. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Remember what was the the, um, the Easter egg on the you know the um the, the comic book, you know, on the ground between the aliens' feet, you know, you're like, man, I totally missed that. <laughs> Sometimes I'm just a, I'm a guy having a good time and not thinking too much. That describes a lot of my history, actually. Yes. Anyway, next story. (laughs) (laughs) I've known this guy a long time. (laughs) The Day After Doomsday. Two pages, script by Steve Skeets, pencils by Steve Ditko, inks by Vince Coletta. The soft sound of gurgling as somewhere in the distance another rubble-clogged sewer backed up, coughing up more rats and other forms of slinking vermin that had somehow survived the Holocaust. Nothing much had survived except for the rats, and Johnny, and the corner soda shop. Nothing much because this was the day after doomsday. Johnny swirled the flat Coke syrup around in the bottom of the glass. Nothing was carbonated anymore except for the air. Thoughts of Joyce and Susie, songs dedicated to Jimmy, Sarah, Brad, Virginia, Roger, Laura, thoughts of a jukebox that worked, all were quickly curtailed by an unexpected sound. What? That sounds like a rock band warming up. But it can't be. There isn't anyone else left alive in this city. But this time, the pleasant sound was not a memory. He spotted them immediately, 
standing on a hill of rubble, seeming to glow in the overabundant sunlight, singing songs of love and peace and unity and directing their performance toward the rapidly approaching one-man audience. He fell at their feet and grooved to sounds he never thought he'd hear again. It was growing warmer and warmer. And then he noticed, they have an electric sound, but their guitars aren't plugged in anywhere. That, it's that glow they're giving off. They're, they're radioactive. That's what powers their guitars. But he had noticed too late. Already, his face was beginning to melt. It only took a few more minutes for him to die. And the mutated minstrels, having lost their audience, packed up and headed on to the next town. No killjoy there. Moving on to the CNC. Holy Steve Ditko, Batman. This is what I've been waiting for from this guy. Page two, panel four is classic Ditko. The way the radioactive waves begin to take effect on poor Johnny. And the page one splash, the different colors and angles in the ravaged city is top notch. The wreckage behind the soda shop, Max's soda shop, kind of reminds me of the Twin Towers aftermath, actually. There's a soda jerk reference I just have to drop. Day after Doomsday? More like the day after Max accidentally hooks up a tank of hydrogen to the soda machine. It's entirely possible I'm not giving Coletta enough credit here, but dang. D-A-D continuing to make believers out of us. Can you get an amen? From me, even? Well, not usually, but as for this time right here, I say amen, Brother Richard. Yes, the presence of Ditko is a big deal for me, as is the presence of my soda shop that you cannot prove I was actually visiting during the time of the alleged incident. However... Let me give some props to the excellent narrative captioning supplied by Stellar Steve Skeets. You heard it all in the synopsis, but wasn't all of it great? Yeah, it was. Ditko's art is, of course, flawless throughout, but I'll call attention to the first panel on page two. The sense of depth that's conveyed perfectly through some deceptively simple drawing, and you can feel... Johnny's pent-up hope and desperation as he races toward his supposed salvation. I gotta say, even though Steve Skeets wrote this one, there's some of Steve Ditko's anti-hippie sentiment in this one, eh? Maybe Steve knew to write his story to the other Steve's tastes. You know, just a two-page joy. This thing was a treat. So, let's see if we get lucky one last time. We'll move on. (laughs) (laughs) to the final story in the issue. It's called Mark of the Conqueror. Seven pages long. Script is by Old Reliable, again, Jack Olek. Different Old Reliable, but Jack Olek. Pencils by Ernie Chan. Inks by Bill Drought. Synopsis for this finale goes like this. Millions had died in the war that Torin the Dictator had started. Today, from a balcony, he was watching the public execution of his own brother by firing squad. Torin's wife, she's never named, so we'll call her Mila for the sake of synopsis simplicity, begged him to stop the execution, but Torin refused. The only good enemy is a dead enemy, and I mean to wipe out my enemies once and for all. He's a traitor, 
He sought to overthrow me and make peace so that he could rule in my place. But only one ruler will ever follow me, my son. It's his destiny to rule, as it was mine when I was born. My family has ruled for five centuries, but only the eldest son inherits power. The firstborn who has this sign, as I have, the mark of the conqueror. He said the title, take a drink. He gestures to a star-shaped birthmark under his right ear as his brother is executed. And Neela turns away in horror. Murderer, how could you? You're insane. You speak of a son, but what if the child I carry under my heart is a daughter? It will be a son. I know it. And when the war is over, he'll rule the world. One push of this button and a force field will cover the palace a field that nothing can penetrate. We have supplies for years. And when the war is over, my son and I will rebuild my kind of world. And you expect me to share it with you? A giant prison? I'd rather be dead too. Torrid slaps Neela across the face. You'll do as you're told. You'll bear my son. After that, you can do as you please. But first, you'll give me a son. He ordered Neela to be taken to her quarters. Later, as radiation levels rise, Torin pushes the aforementioned button that activates the force field over the city. A few years of waiting, then he and his son would rule the world. But almost immediately, Torin's aide runs in. General, your wife, she's gone. I took her to your quarters, but she must have slipped out. She's nowhere in the palace. Torin is enraged. Gone? I already pushed the button. It's not possible. He pulls his hand laser out of his belt and executes his aid. Time passes, and Torin's staff tries to get him to accept that Neela is dead. But he refuses to do so. She somehow lived, and thus so did his son. No one dares contradict him. See what happened to the last guy. Eventually, the war ends but the radiation doesn't dissipate. 10 years pass, 20. Finally, the gauges show that it's safe to lower the force field. He immediately assembles his troops and goes out to search for Neela and his son. The world is eerily empty as they fan out, but suddenly a small boulder smashes into his scout car. On the ridge above them, a pack of wolf-like men are waving clubs and hurling stones. Torin doesn't know what they are, but he doesn't hesitate to slaughter them all. In fact, he revels in the massacre. And when it's over, Torin reassembles the troops to continue the search. But first, he selects one of the beasts to be skinned. His pelt will make a fine trophy. Searching in the jumbled ruins of what had once been a city... The colonel finds Neela, filthy and half-starved, and runs to report to Torin. The dictator is wearing his new pelt by now and hurries to greet his wife. Greet. Check this out. Where is he? Tell me. Where is my son? He's alive. I know he is. Where? Tell me. Neela is horrified to see Torin again, but then she starts to laugh. Your son? You want to know where your son is? That's funny. Torin isn't in the mood for her games and grabs her. Stop it, you sniveling scarecrow! Tell me about my son! This is like Mel Gibson in that movie where, give me back my son. All right, our child was a son. 
And he lived in the horrible jungle you made of the world. He lived, but he hated you. The world is a zoo now, a place for freaks. He hated you for that. So when word came that you'd left your palace, he went out to meet you. He and some others. They wanted to destroy you as you had destroyed everything good and decent. Now you have no son. He's dead. Neela rips the pelt off the stunned Torrin's soldier, uh, shoulders and shows him the mark of the conqueror birthmark under its right ear. You poor, mad, pitiful fool. Don't you know what you've done even now? You've been wearing his skin. The end. We're not going to kill Joy that. Gruesome little ending. So we'll move on to CNC here. And I'll say the first panel of this one drew me in with its Hanna-Barbera Ruby Spears aesthetic. You all know by now that there ain't no post-apocalypse like a Thundar the Barbarian post-apocalypse in my book. The host and logo work wasn't bad either. So, hey, my hopes were kind of high for a second there. And I'll admit that the reveal of the, what we didn't mention yet, simian nature of the main characters was well done because you find out Torin and all these people warring, they look like ape men. <laughs> so that was well done because they don't zoom in on the main characters for a while. And, and that was kind of a surprise. But who, after that, Hey, yeah, yeah. Short version, this fell apart fast and dragged on forever. But if we have to get into specifics, I'll do so. Uh, page two, panel four. I know they're a different species from me and all, but these two, Torin and Neela, look a little advanced in years to be newly expecting parents. Also, is it just me, or is it never clear who the ape folk are at war with exactly? Have they always been at war with Oceania? Is loaning this story a 1984 reference being too generous? And that ending, sure. It's gruesome, but it is also very, very stupid. His son just turned into a wolfman? That's what the radiation does to ape people? I, they were fighting these wolf people in the beginning of the story, and it's mentioned that they are freaks, but not that they are freaks that used to be ape men or that ape men are turned into wolves by radiation across the board, which seems a strange decision. <laughs> but it, it's just dumb. You know, or, or did Mama Monkey there get it on with the with Wolfman Jack and split before the evidence emerged? Eh, oh well, at least the closing shot of the host chilling out on the skinned pelt as a rug was pretty cool. We follow one day after Doomsday story with another, with a dash of Planet of the Apes for good measure, since that's where the principles all look like they came from. This one feels like it went a page or two too long and was completely predictable by the halfway point. Very text-heavy story, too. My son, my son, my son. All story long. And in the end, he kills the only thing he cared about without even knowing it. The vehicles portrayed in the story are fun. The scout car, page one, panel one, looks like a cross between a Volkswagen bug and a dune buggy. And the twin-engine bomber pods, page four, panel three, are pretty neat, too. Page five, panel four, I think Chan and Trout snuck one by the Comics Code Authority. Looks to me like one of the wolfmen had his head blown apart. Maybe because it's not a human but a monster, the 
powers that be let it slide. I don't know. And lastly, page three, panel three, the slap. Have to wonder how this guy would have treated an unwanted daughter. Torn gets what's coming to him. But yeah, I, I don't like this one too much. Yeah, so that felt like about a century of my life. So, <laughs> yeah, that, that was that was that was a joy yeah. to write the synopsis for. I'm here to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> How many times you have to write? My son. Bah, 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 bah. Yeah, <laughs> I made myself go. You know, write the synopsis like that. My son, my son, my son, my son, my son. So all of you fine listeners know what I had to go through. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, awful. So we're going to wash that taste out of our mouth. Uh, being that the story content is all set, we're all through it. We're going to move on to the letters page, known in this comic book series as APO Weird War Tale. Dear Joe, I have never seen anything quite as unique as Weird War Tales. Unlike the rest of your mystery books, it has a central theme. The greatest mystery of all. War. Oh, sure. You have comics, comics like Unexpected with its unexpected endings, which, since that should be the nature of any good suspense story, is not really a theme. Then there's weird Western tales with the stories of Jonah Hex, the Two-Face of the West. Although very original, it's not really a mystery book. In fact, it's more Western than weird. So WWT stands as unique. Let's look at some of the examples. Bloodbath of the Toy Soldiers in your August issue is a war theme that has been used before, but its original elements far outweigh its familiar ones. First, we have our setting, the unknown war. We are never told what the war this is, who is fighting who, or who the good guys are. And it really doesn't matter to the story. The same is true of Day After Doomsday. We know that a great disaster, sorry, Kamandi, has taken place, but we don't know if it's the one depicted in Kamandi or Hercules stories, or the long-lamented Atomic Knights, and we don't care. The punch of the story doesn't depend on that sort of continuity drivel. And of course, the warrior could have taken place during any of the barbaric wars that happened before recorded history. So there you have it. It doesn't matter which war we're shown, or when that war takes place. It's represented with some very solid stories, and are that put across your theme, war is weird. Whatever. And this missive is from Philip Jefferson from Albany, New York, which is, you know, about 20 minutes away from where I live. So, hey, Philip, how the hell are you? And anyway, Joe responds with, you've hit the nail on the proverbial head, Phil. Throughout the history of mankind, there has always been a war waged somewhere. We don't think we're going to run out of new and original locales anytime soon. Yeah, look at 2023, folks. <sighs> By the way, since you mentioned it, all the future disasters and atomic wars that we've presented in our various series can be linked together in a continuous continuity. It's part of Paul Levitz's Guide to Confusing Continuity, and it can be found in Amazing World of DC Comics number 12 on sale right now. An announcement on how to order your copy is elsewhere in this issue. Hey, Max, get on that. Yeah. Yeah, the continuity can be explained right now, but wait till 1985 when Crisis on Infinite Earths blows it all up and we never really fix it ever for the next 40 years after that. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> I'm more on the I'm more on Philip's side with continuity driven drivel being my uh, my late in life here opinion of that sort of thing. So but it is really cool that it's always cool to see a letter from like your own stomping grounds, you know, like a nice upstate New York centered letter. So that was cool of you to find. 
And the next one, the one I'm about to read, doesn't come from too far away from where I live currently either. It starts off, as most of them do. Dear Joe, I continue to be amazed at you. Every issue of WWT brings another surprise. This time, number 47, we have another sword and sorcery barbarian type tale drawn by Ricardo Viamonte. I've loved his stuff since the short-lived Beowulf, and it is really nice to see some more of his imaginative drawing style. His men show a brute strength that cannot be matched by any other artist with the possible exception of Neil Adams. He seems to draw with a thinner line, but still maintains that unique strength that is necessary to this kind of story. The only complaint I have is that writer Jack Olick failed to include a woman in the script. Therefore, we were not allowed the chance to see Viamonte draw some of his stunningly beautiful females. And that comes from Herbert Hunt of Springdale, Connecticut. And Joe responds and says, The Vikings were well noted for leaving their women at home, Herb. But maybe we did miss the chance of showing you how well Ricardo can draw females. If another opportunity arrives, or arises, we'll be sure to include some women in the next script we send to Mr. Viamonte. That's nice to see some some Viamonte love there. And were the Vikings that well known for leaving their women behind when they set out for battle? Is the modern emphasis on shield maidens and female Viking warriors a bit overdone? Watch like any that there's a series I believe called Vikings where one of the major characters is a battling shield maiden. Could I have done some research on that? We may never know. <laughs> so that's APO Weird War Tales. That's the letters pages. Write in with all your Viking minutiae and history and stuff. You know, get in on the act. And while you're doing that, we'll move on to our favorite spotlighted ads of the issue. And I cheated as usual. I got two of them, but I'll be quick. In between pages two and three of that lovely final story, we have one ad, big like half page ad. It says new big as life hangups with movable arms and legs. And it's you got a Superman pin up and a Batman pin up and you can kind of move their arms and legs around and pose them. You know, they do these things for like holiday decorations you can get the easter bunny or whatever or witch and pose them around stuff like that you got a kid setting them up in the ad you know i'm not going to read you all the ad copy because i said i would be quick but i picked out this ad because it says new big as life hang-ups like don't don't worry kid don't rush you'll get those soon enough all right <laughs> you can have plenty of big as life hang-ups when you get out of grade school or whatever okay why be in such a rush Right above that one is a small ad with a little crudely drawn T-shirt on it and the text next to it. And I will read you some of this one. It says, hey, sit on it in a dynamite Fonz T-shirt, five bucks, full color. So, you know, the rest of it's all like, you know, order this stupid unlicensed T-shirt or whatever. But I just love the brazenness of this. Like, it looks handwritten, especially the A and sit on it in a dynamite Fonz T-shirt. It's just wonderful. This is the kind of stuff that I go through old comics hoping to see. And like you said, like the drawing of Fonz, even at the size it was drawn at, is terrible. The T-shirt barely looks like it was built for a human body. There's no hole for the head to come out of, for one thing. <laughs> and, uh, and it's just obviously some fly-by-night 
unlicensed ripoff. I, I gotta, I gotta wonder what this thing looked like if they even ever sent you anything when you gave them your your five bucks. They're also selling like a Fonz poster, bracelets, a Cotter Kids T-shirt, and a mood ring. Th these guys do it all. <laughs> how could you, how could you not send them all your cash and hope for whatever might or might not show up? So those were my ads for the issue. I thought they were kind of fun. Yeah, no lie. I, I saw that Fonz TV uh, T-shirt ad, and like that was that was in the running for a while. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I I went elsewhere. Obviously, remember that fun little ad I called out a while ago about how to pick pockets for magical purposes only. Cough, cough. Well, now if you catch little Mister Sticky Fingers practicing his craft, you can arrest him with the only complete special investigator kit. Also, free badge flasher with each kit, 395. Styles of special police, private detective, special investigator, plus free booklet, how to detect and solve crimes by a leading authority. And <laughs> this thing, it just looks, you know, so bad. This thing is just like the freaking worst. Not, not for sale to New York state residents. What, NYPD frowns on people walking around with these little toys? Can't imagine why. People posing as cops is just good old-natured fun. Come on, loosen up a bit. What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> the 70s were a different country, people. <laughs> it was a little more free range, a little more Wild West back then. Oh, my God. So while you all, like, get ready to hit the streets with your investigator kits and and you know your Fonzie t-shirt and acquire some real big as life hangups. <laughs> we'll move on to a little section of the show where we sum things up and ask each other if we've got any last words. No. Max. Fine. Okay. <laughs> Honestly, the first three stories are tied for first with me. Or for, tied for first for me. But I just gotta pick the Steve and Steve team up on day after doomsday. And not just because Max's Soda Shop is your best and only place for refreshments in the days after the world-ending catastrophe that I, Max, certainly did not cause. Yeah, the last story overstays its welcome and is pretty dumb in the end, but that doesn't keep this issue, for me, from being a blast overall. Oh, all right. <laughs> we all know Face of the Enemy is the winner for me, hands down. The only non-weird story in the issue, of course. This issue was literally a seesaw for yours truly. Good story, bad story. Good story, bad story. Some fun ads, solid cover, and all new contributors to Letters Page help too. I think I'll put this one slightly above the middle of the pile. And we're racking up kind of a tall pile there, so that's not a bad ranking. <laughs> Got a lot of issues under our belts. So... That's it, folks. That's the issue. That's our opinion of it. That's the ads within it. That's all it's got. But we're not done with it yet. We got some other business to attend to over at something we like to call the Dead Letter Office, where we take a look at social media high fives from people out there and check some emails and stuff and remind you that we still have a storefront. It's on redbubble.com. You go there, you search Weird Warriors Podcast, and you can get our awesome logo that is, let me remind you, drawn and designed by Bill Walco of the Hero Business and of recent Archie Comics fame. 
And you can get that logo on any piece of merchandise you can possibly imagine on redbubble.com. And if you do, and you take a picture of yourself with it, then just take a picture of the merchandise in your hand or something. Prove that it's real. Send it to us, and you can win a star from the flag that once flew over Sam Glansman's home. Okay, people? It can happen. And we'll prove it later on in this very section of the show. But for now, I'm going to make you wait on that because you're all waiting to order stuff, I see. <laughs> and uh, let you know who came by the, the socials, media, the Facebooks, the Blue Skies, the whatever, and, and took the time to give us a, uh, hey, how you doing? And those people this time around uh, in this uh, edition of the Dead Letter Office, which is brought to you by episodes 55 and 56, which focused on Weird War Tales number 44 and 45. Those people are Tim DeForest, Herschel Memis, A. of Oz, Ted Halleck, who I actually know in person, <laughs> Luke Giaconetti, Dave Marchand, Mike Sturba, Keith G. Baker, Clinton Robinson, All Groove, Mr. Blue Moon Comics himself, Lloyd Smith, Noel Thingball, that's N-O-E-L, Thing, V-A-L-L, gave us a high sign on the uh, social media there, and the irredeemable shag at Once Upon a Geek and the Fire and Water Podcast Network stopped by. One of the guys responsible for giving me the podcast bug and encouraging me to reach out to a friend and start a show. So this is partially his fault. <laughs> I won't throw Rob Kelly into this because he's had the good taste to stay off the radar over here. <laughs> oh, man. So that's social media stuff taken care of. And I'm going to hand the reins for a bit to Rich over in the Gmail. We got a couple of letters from one person and then another of our good buddies stopped by. But I'm going to let Rich kick off the first two here in the Gmail section of the show. Tim DeForest reaches out to us twice. I'm going to do him in order. Episode 55. I got curious about how often Weird War Tales used vampires during its run. So I tried to do some research. The DC Wiki has a section for vampires that lists their appearances in all titles, including Weird War. Sadly, the list is incomplete, as it does not list this issue or at least one previous issue I remembered. It showed a mere four appearances by vampires. That's the trouble with fan-operated wikis. They rarely have complete information. But I would not be deterred! I went to the Grand Comics database and tried a keyword search using Weird War Vampires and came up with this list of vampire appearances. 13, 16, 18, 22, 44, 46, 51, 62, 67, 83, 90. One of the creature commandos was a vampire, albeit a scientifically created one rather than supernatural origin. And his appearances are in 93, 97, 100, 102, 105, 108 to 112, 114 to 119, 121, and 124. That's a total of 29 vampire appearances and 124 issues. Simple math, then, tells us that an average of 23 to 39% of combat actions in World War II apparently involved vampires. Why is this not in the history books? But, but you know, I've, I've, got, I've got a secondary question. How, how many of them are day-walking vampires? That's, that, well, we shall never know. Anyway, issue 56. I agree that all three stories were strong in this one, though I have a slight nitpick about the first one. German gladiators versus vampire bats. The vampire bats seemed very random and should have been foreshadowed somehow. 
perhaps an image of a bat on a wall mural in the background of one panel. I do realize it's a nitpick, but I think it would have made a good story a little bit stronger. Thanks to both of you for pointing out the EC influence in Conquest. I enjoyed reading the story, but didn't think about EC once while doing so. I didn't see the obvious influences until you pointed them out. Now I feel shamed and think perhaps I should have my nerd credentials suspended for a couple of weeks. Looking forward to future episodes. You know, don't worry, Tim. You, you, are, you are amongst family here, so it's, it's, it's okay. It's, it's okay. Yeah, I told him if, if his nerd credentials are in danger with all the, the research and stuff that he does and the content he puts on his blog, then mine should be revoked completely. So he's he's safe. He's fine. <laughs> and I just, I, I had to, like, and Tim, what a kindred spirit you have there. Because look at all that research he did just on the errant thought of how many times did vampires show up in the series. <laughs> oh, I love it. So we also heard from a founding member of the listenership here on the show, a guy you know and love, Jason Zeller, one of the uh, owners of the Binge Listener Award, the Jason Zeller Binge Listener Award. He's the founder of it. And we'll get to that in an email that just came in as we're recording this after I read you this first one that he wrote about episode 55. He says, hey, guys. This issue had a very haunting cover in which I wondered, what is the soldier parachuting into? Who are the we that are waiting for him? It was great that it actually correlated with a story from within, and that is rare in comic book land. Photo finish was a classic WWT in which the end for Hanson, the photographer, was telegraphed very early. That'll happen. I enjoyed the classic DC splash page that tries to pull the reader into the story and was interested to see death in a ghostly white color for a change. It does make you wonder what happened to the photograph of Bentley dying. Though it was predictable, I think it's a prime example of the type of WWT tales that make up this comic series. Yeah. It's a classic. It's a representative for sure. Fear No Evil really worked for me, though it was strange how they placed six pages of ads in the middle of the story. Yeah, we kind of commented on that. I enjoyed the scary cemetery setting of the story. That sentence was hard to say. A lot of S sounds, just like I'm making right now. The silhouette of the soldier hanging from his parachute while pretending to be dead was haunting yet also believable. I like how the custodian kept talking about wasting blood versus talking about human lives. Yeah, foreshadowing. The reveal at the end was expected, but also very well done. Having vampires active at night was a good touch, eh? <laughs> Though it was strange to see them coming out of a church and hanging out in a place with all those crosses around. Eh, you give up the day walking, you get immunity to crosses, what can I say? <laughs> I try to see these stories as I would have first read them as a kid, and they read much better that way. Yeah, a lot of things are much better if you can put yourself in that mindset. <laughs> I would pour over the pages of a story like this and let my imagination run into other potential possibilities, like wondering where the vampires came from and how long they'd been at the cemetery. It was very good to see the ending of A Day After Doomsday. This is Barry of Bleecker Street we're talking about here, people. No mere run-of-the-mill Day After Doomsday. As we finally got to see Barry rescue the Lady Jackie and all of the hilarious action that followed through the pages. I could see this playing out as a comedy, with Barry rolling all over the castle trying to balance Jackie on his neck, and then the gun going off causing all sorts of chaos. I enjoyed this story very much, but it would have been a bit better to have read it all in one issue without the pages of recap that accompanied each part. You and so many letter writers agree. 
to the series in real time back then. On the other hand, I do like the idea of a continuing story in the pages of Weird War Tales. And here we go, people. This is what I was leading up to before. Jason then finishes the letter by saying, I appreciate the offer to have a star from Sam Glansman's American flag. I consider it an honor to be able to have it, and I'm so grateful to be able to support you guys. The Weird Warriors mug is awesome. Thank you guys very much, Jason Zeller. So, you know, you can read a little bit there. Yeah, he he included um, his address in the email, and I created a small certificate with the show logo on it and mailed it in a Sam Star and a small Mylar bag to him. Tav, I got a lot left. Buy some swag, people, and get an awesome piece of comic book history. Yeah, Rich isn't messing around, people. If you if you reach out to him, to us with the photo, and you give the address to us, he will send you something incredibly awesome. Like I would never do that for any of you. I'm just letting you know, <laughs> Rich. He wouldn't. Will do it. <laughs> no way. Not in any way would I. Um, I don't even know if I would do it for Rich. But anyway. <laughs> We got another email in from Jason. I won't read the whole thing to you guys, but it links up to uh, how I've mentioned that he is no longer the sole owner. He is the founder of the Jason Zeller Binge Listener Award. But, you know, we got our buddy Chuck Bushman that shares that award now, too. He's on that podium up there with Jason. And Jason just wrote in. And at the end of his recent email, he says, as for Chuck Bushman joining me up here on the binge listener podium, thank goodness. There's plenty of room up here, and it's been quite lonely. I keep seeing this skeleton in different war uniforms, and he keeps talking to me, asking me to follow him, and wanting me or wanting to tell me a bunch of weird war tales. Thanks, guys. Jason, no longer the sole owner of the Jason Zeller Binge Listener Award. So the, the podium is freely shared. So anyone else, if you want to just sit down, if you haven't listened to all the old episodes, you want to burn through them and just tell us that you did that. We have no real way of checking. <laughs> but if you would spend the effort to, to even say you did that, we'll pop you right up there on the podium and uh, you get to have that award just for saying so. Yeah, there might be a pop quiz. It's like, what was my favorite story in issue 17? <laughs> <laughs> He's generous, people, but he's also demanding. <laughs> so that's it. That's that's the DLO. That's the dead letter office. That's our emails and everything. But we're not quite done yet, people. Again, I mentioned Rich is a nice guy. He wants to give you something even more on the way out. A little teaser for our next episode. <sighs> I believe Barry White said it best when he said, oh, yeah. Look at your calendars, dear listeners. You know what time it is. Time to hang up your gun and pick up your bow and arrow, baby. You loved it so much the first time. We're doing it again. True War Romances number two from 1952. There's a war in Korea and a war for your heart. Tune in next time. We'll bring the champagne. Love is a battlefield, baby. <laughs>
I can't wait. <laughs> I freaking love doing these comics. I love doing the Valentine's Day specials. I cannot wait. It's the next script on mine. Uh, well, it's two scripts away, but who knows if I'll cheat and do that one first. But anyway, <laughs> like I said, love is a battlefield. And you know who you'll meet on the battlefield? You might meet a couple of guys like us. We're the weird warriors. We're the battling bros for Pete's sake. And we promise to make war. North.